Hello and welcome to Navara FM. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny. In the early 1700s, Europe was alight with the story of Libertalia, a supposed pirate kingdom on Madagascar where people lived in freedom, democracy, and plenty. That kingdom itself may be almost certainly the stuff of legend, but like many legends, it has grown from a seed of truth. There were real communities and collectives in Madagascar where Malagasy people, in coordination with pirates and sailors from around the world, were practicing democracy in action many decades before the Enlightenment revolutions of France and America. The late David Graeber's final publication, Pirate Enlightenment or The Real Libertalia, takes an alternative look at Madagascar's pirate past and what we can learn from it in the present. To discuss this work and all things swashbuckling, I talked with academic and writer Marcus Redeker. Marcus is Distinguished Professor of Atlantic History at the University of Pittsburgh and the author of many works on maritime history from below, including The Many-Headed Hydra, A Slave Ship, Human History, and Villains of All Nations. I asked him about the radical history of piracy and how the mobile, international working classes experimented in living free. Marcus, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about all things revolutionary and piratical. I would love to kick us off with uh, uh, the story of William Fly, not in Madagascar, but uh, in Boston, Massachusetts, Turtle Island, um, who is hanged on the 12th of July, uh, 1726. And his final words, um, as uh, you relate in your book, Villains of All Nations, are chronicled as, our captain and his mate used us barbarously. We poor men can't have justice done us. There is nothing said to our commanders. Let them never so much abuse us and use us like dogs. Fly also said, all masters of vessels might take warning of the fate of the captain that he'd murdered and to pay sailors their wages when due. That seems very class conscious, <laughs> very revolutionary conscious statement on the gallows from a person that we used to seeing in popular culture as sort of swashbuckling without history, having a having a merry old grog sodden time of it. <laughs> without necessarily a, a huge way of, of, of locating them in the history and sort of the evolution of, of capitalism. So can you talk to us a little bit about is pirates uh, you know, understood as, as working class heroes, I guess? It's true. Uh, William Fly in 1726 on the gallows in Boston uh, revealed the main reasons why common sailors became pirates. He actually summed it up for everybody. He said, uh, "He said you treat us like dogs. And what that meant was uh, you, you feed us terrible food, you cheat us of our wages, you beat us. Uh, and that's probably the biggest complaint, the use of the lash by these captains who uh, had extraordinarily swollen powers uh, to discipline and in, in many cases just even to kill uh, the members of their crew. This happened quite frequently. So William Fly revealed that there's a lot more going on among pirates than simple greed and the lust for wealth. That in fact, there's a very uh, important social logic uh, and a revolutionary logic to these thousands, few thousand common sailors who became pirates in the 17-teens and 1720s uh, and organized ships uh, according to their own choices, limiting the power of the captain, electing their captains, electing their other officers, uh, building a democratic social order in a time when poor people had no democratic rights anywhere in the world. So this is a, an extraordinary social experiment. But they also went further. They took their loot and divided it up in these stunningly egalitarian ways in a very different fashion than what happened on naval ships or merchant ships, and thereby created uh, an example, a subversive example, of how common sailors could run a ship in a completely different way. It's, it's like workers taking over the factory. Uh, it, it's literally that and, and getting rid of the bosses and doing things the way they want to. 
So uh, this vision uh, of pirates is really very different from uh, the image that we have in popular culture, in which the pirate is a, uh, as you say, drunken uh, character with uh, bad teeth and bad hair, uh, someone who is, uh, you know, deformed, lost an eye, wearing an eye patch, lost a hand, wearing a hook, lost a leg, uh, having a peg leg, uh, and a parrot sitting on the shoulder. Uh, that, that's the image. That's the image that comes from Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. But it turns out that the real history of the pirates is much more interesting. Can you tell us a little bit more about those conditions that you outlined on ship, these very brutal conditions that were sort of um, seen as necessary for maintaining this like key technology of, of capital accumulation, you know, across the Atlantic and, of course, many other um, trade routes across the world? Well, the first point, Eleanor, is that uh, you must we, we must understand that the ship was the most important piece of technology to the rise of global capitalism. This is actually the, the machine. The ship is a machine. It's a complex machine that allowed Europe to not only explore, but colonize and dominate the rest of the world. It was this machine that combined speed of movement with great destructive power based on the cannon that were loaded onto these vessels. These are gunned warships. So, so, so it's not just a matter of these common sailors uh, uh, seizing uh, their ships. They're seizing what is in many ways the key to an entire economic system. Uh, and, and they're turning it against that economic system. They capture thousands of vessels. Uh, and, and this, of course, infuriates the ruling classes of Europe. These people are really interfering with the way the economy uh, is supposed to work. Uh, and, and, and specifically, one of the things that uh, the pirates did was they disrupted the Atlantic slave trade. And, and this proved to be the most intolerable thing uh, of all because a group of wealthy slave trading merchants petitioned Parliament in 1722. You've got to send a, a convoy of naval vessels down there and rid the seas of these people who are such, uh, or who are doing such great damage to this new, uh, you know, capitalist system that we're building. Uh, and they did actually dispatch that convoy. A, a major battle took place between. Uh, the British state and a group of pirates led by a man named Bartholomew Roberts. Uh, it was Roberts' bad luck that uh, a lot of the pirates were drunk when the British vessels arrived. They, they were uh, enjoying their freedom a little too much. <laughs> and uh, after a bloody battle in which Roberts himself was killed, uh, the pirates were taken. Uh, 52 of them were uh, executed and this was really the beginning of the end uh, of the golden age of piracy. But, but I would emphasize the global economic importance of all this. You know, these people who have taken over their own ships are really causing havoc in the trade system. It, it's a crisis. They're disrupting the accumulation of capital in a major way. What did that disruption look like? I'm wondering what it kind of constituted because you read dif different sort of uh, assessments of, of the role of pirates versus privateers and their particular relationships to different states who were, you know, all engaged in these forms of, of capital accumulation, but often at war with one another. Right. Well, it, it is an important distinction, the privateer and the pirate. The privateer is basically a private man of war that is commissioned by a monarch of Europe to uh, fight and capture the vessels of that monarch's enemies during wartime. So Britain and France in the 18th century would send out all these commissions. They're called letters of mark uh, to these people who will then use those gunned warships to at attack the trading vessels of the other country. And this was actually a pretty good line of work for common sailors because you did much better as a privateer than you did as a sailor in the Royal Navy or the merchant shipping industry. But imagine how these common sailors felt when at the end of the war, these commissions expire. 
You can no longer engage legally in privateering. And what happens is that uh, when the War of Spanish Succession ends in 1713, quite a lot of these uh, common sailors turned privateer decide, we don't think the war is over. We're just going to keep on and we'll keep attacking the vessels. And know what? You know what? We will attack not only the vessels of France, we will attack the vessels of England too. We declare war on the whole world, is what pirates were uh, heard to say. They actually said that. We declare war on the whole world, which is also to say we don't play by your, your laws. We don't play by the laws that you made to protect these rich merchants. We're not playing that game. We're going to do something different. Let's talk about those laws for a moment because um, pirates are often very aware that they're living under, under the shadow of the kinds of punishment that they will face on land. They have the slogan, a merry life but a short one, or a merry life and a short one, depending on how you want to angle it. Um, what is it like, I guess, you know, experimenting with these forms of, you know, living a bit more freely, but always, uh, you know, under the shadow of the gallows, under the shadow of basically right. just how dangerous this career is? Well, and they knew it, you know, they knew it. But you got to bear in mind, Eleanor, that the mortality rates for common sailors were already very high. In other words, if you went to work at sea, uh, odds are in a few years, six, seven, eight years, you would be either maimed or dead. Mm. So when these sailors decide to become pirates, a lot of them are thinking, well, what the hell? We, we, we didn't have great expectations to begin with, so let us live freely while we can. Uh, let us uh, live the best life we can lead uh, uh, until they catch us. And a lot of them knew that they were going to get caught eventually. Some got away, but quite a few didn't. And, and a considerable number decided that they wanted to fight to the death anyway. Now, uh, what happens uh, when you carry out this activity in the uh, shadow of the gallows? You develop what's called gallows humor. <laughs> this becomes a major way that you deal with, uh, you know, the tensions of your work. Uh, a merry life and a short one. That sort of sums it up. That's kind of a funny, a funny phrase, you know. That uh, yeah, we'll we'll have a good time until until we end up on the gallows. But it actually went further. This humor. Uh, and one of my favorite stories about this is that uh, a, a group of pirates in the 1720s captured a vessel, a prize vessel, and they had plundered it of whatever they wanted. And then at the last minute, uh, they saw some bundles of paper. And it turns out these were uh, decrees signed by the king uh, against pirates. So they said, hey, bring us those bundles of papers over here. And the, the captain of the merchant vessel couldn't understand it. He said, why would you be interested in those? And, and they, their answer was, well, we need toilet paper. So they're going nice. to use the king's decree uh, as toilet paper. And this is, you know, they just, they had a sense of humor about it all. You're, uh, you're writing about uh, just the, the, the fun and the raucousness um, that, that goes alongside and is kind of fermented by these, you know, very uh, extreme conditions of life in many senses it does put me in mind of um, uh, Graeber and Wengrow's formulation of, of homo ludens as like the base uh, nature of humanity, the not homo economicus right. or any of that nonsense. Um, and through uh, the work that's kind of a companion work, I guess, to um, uh, the Pirate Enlightenment book, um, The Dawn of Everything, they kind of go through uh, a history of humans playing with, experimenting with different styles of living together, different styles of arranging mm -hmm. their relationships to one another, to nature, all that. And it does strike me that there is this particular kind of um, particular propensity, particular situation, particular energy uh, of, of the way in which pirates are engaged in that human mission, if you like. No, it's, it's, it's actually fascinating to think about because um, your body will function in a completely different way 
once you have captured the ship and are arranging it for yourself. In other words, these sailors who were kind of beaten and, and uh, so badly mistreated in the normal course of their work and who had learned to move very slowly, right? Uh, that's one of the things that brought the whip out. Uh, people remarked on the fact that once they got on board the pirate ship, they had shed all of that alienation, and now suddenly they were creating something new, and it was tremendously exciting to them. So these uh, these people who could hardly be made to move in the normal course of work were, were suddenly lively. Now, that doesn't mean that they loved work, because they didn't love work. And one of the great attractions of a pirate ship was that you didn't have to work nearly as much. And so let me illustrate that for you. Uh, a normal merchant vessel of, say, 200 tons, and that's not the weight of it, that's the carrying capacity, but a fairly common transatlantic vessel, would have between a crew of 18 to 20 people. A ship of the same size that has been refitted as a pirate vessel would have about 80 people on board, which means that everyone would do roughly one-fourth of the work that they would have done on a regular vessel. So that left you a lot of time for drinking and dancing and singing and storytelling. So, so yeah, Homo Lutens is right. They were out here with the three-day week, with the two-day week before it was a glitz <laughs> in a policy wonk's eye. We love that. Um, can we? Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about, I guess, what that process of democracy and self-rule on board was? You talk about as well this the way that kind of multi-ethnic and multinational composition of crews kind of really helped foment uh, that style of living. Well, maybe the one way to to talk about what it looked like. We have a lot of uh, testimony from merchant ship captains who were uh, prisoners on board pirate ships. And so they come out of this extremely authoritarian world in which they are all powerful. And then they see pirates doing everything in this democratic way, and they are completely scandalized. They, they say, this is crazy. The captain has no real power here. Uh, but of course, that's the point. The point was that captains were, were, were brutal and pirates uh, specifically set about to limit the captain's power. Now, part of that was they elected the captain in the first place. But it also meant that if they didn't like what the captain was doing, that captain could be deposed. Secondly, they created a, a new position on the pirate ship called a quartermaster, who was basically like the, the tribune of the crew, the voice of the crew. And his job was to keep an eye on the captain and make sure he didn't exceed his uh, you know, granted authority. But also then this most trusted member of the crew, the quartermaster would be the one who would divide up all the loot uh, in this equal way. So, so these merchant captains, they come on board a pirate ship, they see this democracy in action, and to them it's just total chaos. One of them says, um, the captain doesn't even get to keep his private cabin. You've got common sailors sleeping in there. And, uh, and the pirate captain says, yeah, that's the way it works on this ship. You know, we're doing something in a very different way. I'm so fascinated um, by the role of the dispenser of justice, not just in what they do, but it's such a, such a self-conscious way of naming the, the, the broader project of, of how they're living together. Well, I, I must say that the discovery that there was uh, within the pirate ship division of labor a job called dispenser of justice, I thought this was pretty spectacular. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so basically what this meant was uh, when pirates would capture a, a prize vessel, they would send uh, a boarding party onto the vessel. And, and rather than just start looting the vessel, they would instead enact a drama. All of the sailors from the vessel they had just captured would line up on one side of the main deck, and the captain would be on the other. The captain was now the prisoner of the pirates. So the dispenser of justice would step up and say to the crew of this vessel, boys, how does the captain treat you? Now, imagine such a moment of drama, because 
this captain is is being held by a bunch of very tough uh, former common sailors who themselves had been abused by their captains. So they're not in a good mood about all this. And if the sailors say, uh, our captain mistreats us, our captain flogs us, our captain pinches our provisions, our captain bilks our wages, if a sailor says that, that captain is in a lot of trouble. Because what the pirates would usually do is tie the captain up at that spot on the ship, near the shrouds usually, where the cap that captain had administered whippings to his own crew, and the pirates would now whip that captain to teach him a lesson. So these pirates are acting as avengers of the common sailor. They're taking on board, you know, what the common sailor experiences, and they're they're intervening in those shipboard relations of production. Now, I want to emphasize it it worked the other way too. There are a, a few cases of pirates taking the vessel, enacting this drama. The dispenser of justice says, uh, so how does the captain treat you? And the sailors say, our captain treats us very well. So what do the pirates do in that case? They give the captain some money. They give the captain his ship back. And they say, go home to London and tell all those other merchants and ship captains what happens when you treat your crew well. So, so this is a, you know, this tells you a lot about the social consciousness of pirates, that they they were ordinary working people and they tried to change the way sailors were treated in exactly the same way that uh, William Fly articulated on the gallows in 1726. I'm wondering uh, what would the situation be um, when pirate ships would encounter um, slaving vessels, which would, of course, have you know um, enslaved people on them, and, and what the relationship was to, of, of pirates to those enslaved people. I mean, it, it's it's not um, obviously those people would have been considered as a kind of loot. Right. So you know, what, how do they interact with with these enslaved people, and what was and yeah. what was that like for the broader path of of the of the Atlantic slave trade? Okay, so this is a, this is a, an interesting and complicated question. It turns out that the relationship between pirates and slavery changed over time. Uh, in the 1690s, a number of pirates were actually involved in slave trading, uh, especially on the island of Madagascar. It seems that they were much more interested in that in the Indian Ocean than they were in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, so so that's, that's kind of one issue. Some pirates did trade in slaves. The Atlantic pirates actually wanted to capture slave ships before there was any so-called human cargo on board. They actually wanted the ships, not enslaved people. And that's for a couple of different reasons. One was that these vessels, these slaving vessels, had a lot of food on them for the transatlantic crossing, and they also had a big lower deck that would allow you to accommodate a much bitter, bigger pirate crew. Remember how those pirate ships were much more crowded. So, so these, are, these are reasons why pirates did that kind of thing, why they wanted slaving vessels, but the very capture of those vessels was disruptive uh, of the slave trade. Uh, the, the second point I want to mention is that even though some pirates are involved in slave trading, it is also true that aboard the pirate ships of the Atlantic, there is a very large number of black sailors. Mm -hmm. And these people came from many different places. Uh, uh, some of them were people who had managed to gain their freedom one way or another, and they just worked as common sailors. Others were uh, escapees from the plantation system. So I actually, as I was doing this research years ago, I was kind of shocked to see that uh, almost every pirate ship had 20, 30, 40, sometimes 50% of its crew made up of people of color. Uh, and these people were not slaves because they're described as being heavily armed. They're described as leading the boarding parties onto prize vessels. So the question becomes, why would pirates want 
to admit these black sailors aboard their ships? The, the answer is, to that is quite practical. Uh, and again, twofold. They wanted people who would be committed to the cause of their pirate endeavor. And believe me, uh, a, a fugitive from the plantation system would be one of your most committed people. Secondly, they wanted people who knew how to fight. And one of the recent discoveries of the history of uh, Atlantic slave trade and slavery in the New World is that a very large number of enslaved people who arrived in the Americas had extensive military training in wars that were going on in West Africa. Most of those wars had to do with slaving. And uh, the armies trying to defend certain groups were sometimes captured, uh, vanquished, and enslaved and sold into the slave trade. So another important part of all this is that a lot of these black pirates were very skilled fighters. So this is, uh, these are the reasons why you see lots of black pirates. This is the reason why the, the lead character in our new graphic novel, the one I've done with David Lester and Paul Buell called uh, Under the Banner of King Death, the lead character in that is uh, uh, an enslaved, formerly enslaved person, self-emancipated person who had escaped a plantation in South Carolina, a man named John Gwynn. I'd love to know a little bit more about the ideas about liberty and democracy and all these things kicking about in the firmament that um, these sort of multi-ethnic motley crews uh, would have been familiar with the kind of cosmologies uh, that they might be working with that go into this sort of uh, melting pot and influence. Uh, you know how how they conduct these experiments in living differently. Well, I mean, one thing to understand is that the the maritime world was multi-ethnic in the extreme, and that goes back actually to the 14th and 15th century. If you look at the crew lists of uh, Columbus and Magellan, they had, they had the motley crew. They had sailors who were Irish and Greek and West African, uh, Italian, Spanish, Dutch. So, so, so this is just the nature of the maritime labor market. This is an international labor market. And in that context, people start to engage with each other in different ways. Uh, the, the idea of race, the modern idea of race, hasn't developed yet. Uh, and these people are required to cooperate in the course of their work. They have to work together to make the ship sail. And what happens is that in the, in the course of, of doing the cooperative labor, required to run the ship, they begin to cooperate in projects of their own making. And this becomes the source of resistance. Your cooperation may have been brought about by capital, uh, the accumulation of capital, but once you're working with other people, then suddenly you can translate that cooperation into many different kinds uh, of projects. So that firmament that you mentioned, uh, it turns out it was uh, much richer than we thought. I mean, we allowed the nationalist histories uh, of a later time to, to dominate our view of what was politically possible among people who uh, had a great deal of international exper experience. Uh, and, and, and the way that uh, Peter Linebaugh and I came to uh, denominate that uh, revolutionary force uh, is to call it the Motley Crew, which was present not only on ships, but in every port city, more or less anywhere in the Atlantic world. You had these kinds of people working together. And this then, we may come back to this, Eleanor, is linked to a theme that uh, Peter and I were interested in in the Minnehead Hydra, and David Graeber was interested in, and that is this idea of enlightenment from below, that this puts that whole process uh, in a new way, in a new light, I should say. So, so, so basically what, what I think is, is going on among the Motley crew is that, you know, the ship in some way is a, is a laboratory for new ideas. Uh, it's also the way in which Ideas circulate from one place to another. Sailors are vectors of knowledge. Uh, you may have 
resistance going on in one place that a sailor will carry to another place. You know, you should see how people are fighting in London. And this is said in Boston or in uh, Salvador, Brazil, or in Cape Town, South Africa. So sailors are not only uh, carriers of information, uh, they are the most mobile part of the working class, and they are the connectors of workers in different regions. And this, of course, is one of the main points of uh, the many-headed hydra. Let's turn now from Boston, the Atlantic, to uh, Madagascar, to the, the, the site of David Graeber's study um, in the book, Libertalia, the Real Pirate Enlightenment. So it takes its name from uh, Libertatia, Libertalia, under different names, this purported uh, pirate colony, this pirate utopia, supposedly uh, led by a Captain James Misson, Mission, sometimes spelled, sometimes called Oliver. All of these uh, people often are, are reported as living in uh, under many different names. And the records, archaeological, archival, etc., for an actual place uh, called Libertalia um, are somewhat hazy, seems to be more of a thing of, uh, of myth. Um, but I'm, uh, I'm wondering, I guess, why that myth takes off um, so powerfully and, and, and how basically it takes off. Uh, it seems to be whispers uh, flying around about it throughout the world in this time. Yes, Libertalia is introduced to the world through a book written by a man named Captain Charles Johnson. Now, that is clearly a pen name. Uh, we can't find a person called Captain Charles Johnson. Uh, for many years, people thought that Daniel Defoe actually wrote this book, The General History of the Pirates. I personally don't think that he did because there's a kind uh, of maritime knowledge in that book that Defoe simply didn't possess. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the book was probably written by a variety of writers, some of whom had maritime backgrounds, uh, some of whom had direct connections to pirates and were able to interview them, and some of whom had access to governmental documents, unpublished governmental documents about pirates that were circulating at that time. So, so this book, The General History of the Pirates, introduces Libertalia, and it is described as uh, essentially a, a place of democracy and equality uh, presided over by Captain Misson, also uh, a defrocked priest. Uh, and it, it actually describes a social order built in Libertalia, which is said to be in Madagascar, that is remarkably similar to what was going on aboard the ships that we discussed earlier. So, so I think uh, Libertalia begins in a, in a certain sense as a utopian tract, but I think what it's very important to understand is that it is based on real social practices. So even if there was no specific settlement called Libertalia, it is nonetheless true that these practices, these democratic and egalitarian practices on board pirate ships did go ashore in many places, including Madagascar. So in my view, we shouldn't get hung up uh, on whether there was an actual physical place called Libertalia, the important thing to understand is that these radical practices were real. I'd love to know a little bit more about um, those those real landed radical practices that um, Graeber traces to uh, the Betsamiraka Confederation um, led, although that's a sort of troubled category, um, by a man named uh, Ratsamilaho, who's um, supposed to be the son of an English pirate and a Malagasy woman. Now, the, the, the historiographies of this um, uh, vary, and then often they redound to a kind of great man theory of history. And the way that Graeber engages with that, of course, is this um, uh, reading between the lines, critical fabulation, in the words of uh, Sadia Hartman, a uh, way of uh, thinking about, uh, okay, what is really there behind the the stories of just, uh, just uh, a history made by singular um unique, exceptional individuals? Well, this is, uh, this is the importance of history from below. Mm. And history from below grew up in 
antipathy to the, the, the history dominated by great men, presidents, prime ministers, philosophers, statesmen, that sort of thing. Uh, and the point was to try to understand how the ordinary working people of any particular era were not only the subjects of history, but the makers of history. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the approach that David Graeber takes in uh, Pirate Enlightenment. Uh, it's the approach that I've used my entire career. Uh, and, and the point is that it is difficult to find sources that will allow you to know what these ordinary working people are actually doing and thinking. But when you read the sources that are usually produced by elites, um, E.P. Thompson used to say, uh, you take these documents produced by, you know, privileged elite people, you take those documents, you hold them up to a satanic light and you read them backwards. And that's the way that you find uh, the, the evidence for history from below. And what Thompson was sort of playing with there was this belief that witches could read backwards. This was part of the, the proof of their evil. So I think what Thompson was saying is that witches probably make the best historians. But, uh, but David Graeber has read the evidence about the Betsa Maraca Confederation uh, through this method uh, in which you're constantly trying to find out what is the social process, what kind of social formation is taking place that makes great leaders possible. And what he's found, and I think convincingly found, is that there is a direct transfer of the ideas and practices uh, of the pirate ship to the onshore communities in Madagascar in the uh, early 18th century. Could you tell us a little bit more about um, the, that process of transfer and, and how these, these on-land experiments in uh, democratic and, and liberty-driven living kind of unfurl through this period we're talking about, sort of the early 1700s, very late 1600s here, golden age of piracy raging all around us? Well, one of the things that uh, Graeber has found in, in looking at the history of the Betsimizaraka is that they, they basically decided everything by a collective decision-making uh, body called the Kabari. Uh, and this was the place where young men, especially warriors, would hold their debates. This uh, Graeber saw as a reaction against the agency of women uh, women who had married pirates and basically used those strategic alliances to assert their own power uh, in this period. But nonetheless, what fascinates me about all this is that the, the Kabari uh, very closely resembles uh, the pirate council, which was the ultimate authority on board a pirate ship. Basically, whenever any really significant issue had to be discussed and debated, all members of the crew were called together to discuss it. In other words, it wasn't a decision taken by the captain. Uh, it, it was things were debated democratically. And what's really fascinating about Graeber's finding here is that the Kabari, this kind of institution, which is actually very old in Madagascar, uh, seems to be a fusion of the maritime and the landed. So this would be one of the ways in which the radical ideas and the democratic processes are uh, re-institutionalized. What's the role of um, Malagasy people, um, you know, in this in this process of collaboration? Because often, of course, they um, get left out of of our archives. But and especially, we're kind of uh, used to through pirate culture, pirate literature. Used to thinking of these sort of island paradises as very isolated um, places. But of course, Madagascar is deeply, deeply metropolitan at the time. This, very, uh, very cosmopolitan trade port. There are uh, African people there, South Asian people, Muslim, Jewish, all around the world. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just wondering what what that process of of, of collaborative cosmology, uh, how that unfurls. Well, well, look, uh, this is another thing that's important about Graeber's work. We have been hoodwinked into thinking that the so-called sedentary primitive, 
this was one of the major themes of anthropology for many generations, uh, is the defining feature of life for most of the people on the planet. But uh, someone named uh, James Clifford wrote a, a fascinating article years ago uh, about mobile cultures and the way in which uh, the, the ordinary experience of humanity is to be on the move. Mm. So what this means is that, that those people who were considered to be sedentary and primitive would frequently turn out to be mobile and cosmopolitan. Mm. Uh, and that is a very good example of, uh, of the Malagasy. That, and, and so what this means, uh, I think in turn to someone like Graeber, uh, is that there, is a, there are certain kinds of knowledge, there are certain kinds of sophistication, which we in our previous condescension could not imagine, could not hear, could not see. So this is another very important thing about reading uh, the sources from below, reading between the lines, against the grain, that sort of thing. So it's that kind of reading that allows uh, uh, Graeber to, to argue that the Malagasy people are really the major players uh, in the development of this history. Uh, they're they're not uh, they're they're not uh, simply passive participants, uh, and and I might mention that I think one of the great great strengths of Graeber's book is that it combines maritime history from below with indigenous history from below. That's an unusual combination, but that's what allows us to see the agency of many different kinds of people who are usually left out of these stories. And there is that intuitive connection, of course, between um, what, yeah, again, is, is chronicled in um, Dawn of Everything. We have a fabulous um, uh, opportunity, excuse me, um, and there's that intuitive connection, of course, between the, 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 the link between mobility and the fundamental ability to, to build a different life uh, that right. is, is hyper available to a figure like the sailor and also to the, you know, deeply mobile, deeply cosmopolitan ways of living, which is, you know, very convincingly argued to be the base uh, unit, the base default of um, the human experience. That's, there's um, an uh, interview that we conducted, very luckily conducted, um, with uh, the co-author David Wengro of The mm -hmm. Dawn of Everything back in 2021, um, which is available to check out, of course. Um, so what is the role of these uh, historical figures like Ratsimalaho, um, like uh, Nathaniel North in... Um, the creation of these histories? Are we to understand them as, as, as leaders, as kings? What's going on here? I think it's, it's best to understand them as embodiments of historical processes going on below, from below. Mm. Uh, in other words, uh, they are great men only insofar as they uh, express deeper, more powerful social currents than any individual could possibly uh, could could possibly uh, express. So, what what fascinates me about all this is that it does disrupt, in a major way, the traditional story of the Enlightenment which was considered to be uh, the work of enlightened middle and upper class men in Europe. Uh, well, look, once you start looking from below, once you start attending to these alternative ways of, of organizing human life, uh, you've got a completely different history, for example, of democracy, a completely different history of equality in which the, the non-elite peoples of the world play really major roles. So, so I think that's a, that, that is a very important thing. Um, one thing about sailors is that by virtue of their mobility, they were constantly having to improvise. In other words, your, your life is, it, you just live according to a different logic. Uh, you, you, things are just not uh, the same as they are for people who are sort of fixed in one place. And uh, Walter Benjamin wrote a, a wonderful essay about this kind of thing called The Storyteller. And he argued that there are basically two kinds of stories. There's the peasant story, which is rich with the lore of a specific place. 
And then there's the sailor's story, which conveys knowledge and wisdom gathered from afar. So what you find in, in meetings uh, in Madagascar between people like uh, uh, North and Malagasy people uh, is, is the meeting of those two kinds of stories, the meeting of those two kinds of experiences. And in that connection resides great creativity that something new can happen when you bring new component parts together. And this, of course, is the great principle of the Motley crew. It was constantly assembling things from many different cultures and in so doing, creating something new, something, something powerful, something that wasn't reducible to nations or national history. Is that troubled process translating uh, those uh, experiments of living differently from the kind of isolation, I guess, of the slave ship as a social unit to a kind of more landed existence where, you know, as you've outlined, Madagascar does play a, an outsized role in, in pirates' involvement with uh, the slave trade, which obviously troubles our ability to colour them as, you know, simply uh, working class heroes, of course. Part of what nationalist history has done is to make everyone think that history happens only on land and that it usually happens in the context of nation states. And consequently, the sea, the oceans of the world, um, the maritime bodies are somehow unreal spaces and therefore ahistorical spaces. Right. I actually, you know, I, I, I've been writing about seafaring people my whole life, and I, I kept trying to figure out why it is that people couldn't see uh, these sailors as historically important figures. And it turns out that there is a, a, a deep implicit bias in modern thought, and uh, I named it uh, terracentrism. <laughs> that that we think the you know the the lands of the world are uh, the place where everything happens, but and, and here I, I come back to your question: uh, history happens at sea, class formation happens at sea, race formation happens at sea. One of the big conclusions of the book I wrote called "The Slave Ship" is that. Uh, what's happening on the lower deck of slave ships, which, which is that this is a place of tremendous misery, but also of great cultural creativity, is that uh, dozens of distinct African peoples are forming something new on those vessels, something new in the way of culture. And if you look at this from uh, the, the Eastern Atlantic perspective, what you see being formed on those vessels is what we might call a Pan-African culture. If you look at it from the side of the Western Atlantic, what you see is uh, something that's uh, the formation of African-American culture. American, not in a national sense, but in a hemispheric sense, right? The Americas. Right? And what's really crucial is that by studying those cultures on the ships uh, and the things that are going on on those ships, new languages being formed, new forms of resistance being pioneered, there is the creation of cultures of resistance on board the ship that is then carried ashore and becomes a major part of the opposition to uh, slavery as a system, as it's being created. So, so part of the reason why our thought has been impoverished uh, is that we don't pay attention to the seas and oceans of the world as historical spaces where very important historical processes are playing out. This puts me in mind of, of course, the late, great Derek Walcott and his poem, The Sea is History. Um, very much urge anyone to check it out if you've not uh, if you've not come across it of course a uh, saint lucian um poet playwright nobel laureate um all those uh, wonderful things so there's this discrepancy that uh, graber identifies between the pr of um the kinds of places and i'm using these this phrase in the biggest square scare quotes possible ruled over by uh, Ratsimilaho or a figure like Nathaniel North. They're kind of uh, uh, translated or as 
tyrannical uh, pirate kings or all powerful and it seems to be a kind of a kind of play act um that it's, it's convenient to to be understood by like basically the kinds of people who who would threaten this sort of polis um i'm wondering what what you make of that in the in the light of this sort of pirate homo ludens well, I think uh, Graeber has, has done a very interesting job in talking about mock kingdoms. Mm. Uh, in other words, the image of a polity that is somehow embodied by a great man, but once you look at the actual social formation, it's something completely different. Uh, and, and he does link this back to the, I think he calls them the wonder tales that uh, pirates would tell. Uh, and, and actually, it, the best example of this, although he doesn't talk about it, the best example of this is a, a pirate by the name of Edward Teach, uh, better known as Blackbeard. Now, Edward Teach understood that the deck of a ship could be a global stage to enact ideas. And what Edward Teach did in an effort basically to, to create a, a powerful image of himself was to, every time he captured an, another vessel or went into battle, he would put sparklers in his beard and his hair. So he would literally create a satanic halo around his head. And, and you've got to remember that in a time when the average man was five feet, four inches tall, uh, uh, Teach or Blackbeard was apparently about six foot nine or six foot 10. So he was a, a giant of a man. But he's basically using satanic imagery to terrify people and to make people want to surrender the moment they see him on the horizon. Now, if you look at the actual history of his ship, uh, he wasn't the tyrant that he was made out to be. He asked for the crew's permission. He had people vote on things. So this is actually a perfect example of the way in which uh, a certain appearance can, can look one way, but the reality underneath is something quite different. It's, it's democracy in theocracy drag. <laughs> Good way to put it. So I, I also love the way that you uh, capture it as sparklers because I've always um, heard of it as like firecrackers or like flames. But when you think of it as sparklers, you're like, oh, that's fabulous. Um, that's, that's kind of uh, delightful and whimsical. Um, and I think that kind of sense of of, of play and whimsy does um, it, it does seem to be elaborated throughout the ways in which um, both Libertalia's talked about and the real Betsamizaraka Confederation is is talked about as uh, um, seems to be just this this hive of of myth making. People can't stop talking about it. Can you talk to us about what well, you know? I guess that why that was so fascinating for people at the time when these ideas of freedom are being formulated and reformulated in what we now think of as the Enlightenment. Yeah, it's it, to me. It's a it's a fascinating question. Uh, the appetite for these kinds of stories was enormous in the period when pirates, including those in Madagascar, are active. In other words, the, it, it's true that the image of the pirate has changed over time. And Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island really changed it, allowing pirates to enter the fantasy life of children. But pirates were uh, working class heroes in their own era. And we have this from the lips of no less than Cotton Mather, the great Puritan divine who would preach these execution sermons uh, like the one that you mentioned uh, with uh, William Fly. William Fly insulted Cotton Mather, uh, by the way. Uh, and then he would go home and write in his diary, why is it that all these people who show up for these executions regard these criminals as heroes? So there, there's this tremendous appetite at the time and subsequently uh, for the uh, for these pirate tales, we might call them. Uh, and, and those tales do have a life of their own to some extent. But but here's one thing that I think is is really interesting. Um, we don't remember the names of the people who hanged the pirates. Hmm. We remember the pirates. So in a very real sense, uh, they lost the battle, but they won the war for popular memory. 
And so we're still interested in them, and we're interested in them for very good reasons, because no matter how much you actually know about pirates, most everybody has a sense that they were rebels, that they were people who stood up against the most powerful figures of their age. I mean, literally the wealthiest merchants, the architects of capitalism, of, of empires. They stood up and, you know, on the gallows, uh, they called them out. You know, they, they, they turned, uh, if, if Blackbeard turned the, the ship's deck into a stage, lots of pirates turned the gallows into a stage in which they would say things like, uh, they'd look over at the rich men observing the execution uh, and they'd, they'd basically say, uh, confusion to you, confusion to the colony, damnation to the governor, to hell with all you. Uh, or someone asks uh, a pirate, you know, you're supposed to repent in that situation. You're supposed to say, oh, I'm so sorry, I did this, I did that. A few pirates did that, hoping to get a pardon. But, but most pirates said uh, what one, the kind of thing one man said, uh, do I repent? Yes, I repent that I hadn't been a greater plague to this place and captured a lot more <laughs> ships. <laughs> incredible, incredible. That's a morning affirmation for you. I was just wondering what you make, uh, you know, as, as as a practicer of history from below, as a methodology of that difference between the myth and, I guess, what we we know what we're in the archive, like how that legend um, warps and takes on new form. Well, you know, myth making is a universal human process. There's a, a wonderful. Uh, analysis of this by a, a French literary critic uh, years ago called uh, Ro named Roland Barthes, who uh, wrote a book called Mythologies. And, and what he said was that uh, myth is history trying to become nature. In other words, myth uh, requires the, the abolition of history so that the signifiers can function independently of any particular historical process. And to some extent, that has definitely happened with pirates. They've been denatured. They've been de-radicalized. Uh, and so it takes uh, people going back into the archives to discover what, uh, what the real history was. Uh, but you know, my work, and I think uh, David Graeber's work, proceeds from pretty basic questions uh, in history, in writing history or anthropology from below. Uh, and you, this would apply to sailors, pirates, uh, Malagasy people. Uh, what did these people think they were doing? And why did they do it? That's just a pretty fundamental question. And, and it turns out once you ask that question, you get behind the myth, you get beneath the myth. You, you are able then to think of history in really human terms. Uh, you're able to think of it uh, in which history is a collective process and not something just carried on by, by great men. Uh, and I think that really helps us in the present. I think that really uh, does uh, enable us to think about a better future. Once you know that things were once different, uh, you can imagine them being different in the future. Once you know that the struggles that you're involved in, in the present, have been fought over for hundreds of years, suddenly you're not alone anymore. I mean, people have been fighting for a genuine democracy and equality for a very long time. Uh, and, and we can take inspiration from that. So Graeber reframes what we have named Enlightenment as a you know process that gets synthesized in the coffee houses of Paris and and whatnot as you know just that a sort of as a synthesis rather than just an act of, of nameless and causeless inspiration right that he says okay this is a former backwater France England a former kind of like fairly parochial areas of the world and now through the, you know through trade through colonialism being forced into different encounters with ideas of individualism and freedom from the indigenous americas african contract theory uh the ideas of the chinese bureaucratic state uh islamic national social theory um and they're just kind of putting it um all together and this is a kind of a, a retort or or maybe a sort of a a contra history to some ways of framing the Enlightenment through what is, you know, 
undeniably, its role in fermenting and articulating ideas that were then used to justify huge amounts of violence, huge amounts of brutality, can't, of course, um, it helps theorise why it's okay to do genocide against indigenous people and to um, dispossess and enslave people. So I'm, I'm wondering why are, I guess, we interested in um, re-articulating and decolonizing this concept of enlightenment? What, what is it about this process of enlightenment that, that it's worth holding on to here? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I can answer that by discussing briefly... Um, a book that I wrote about a, a radical Quaker abolitionist named Benjamin Lay. Please. He was four feet tall. He had dwarfism. Uh, he was a common sailor for many years. Uh, and he was basically left out of most of the histories of abolition, even though he was a convinced abolitionist two generations before uh, an anti-slavery movement. Uh, such as it was, uh, began to uh, appear in the 1780s and 1790s. Lay was an abolitionist in 1718. So he's, uh, he's really a person who's well ahead of his time. The reason why he was never made a part of the uh, history of uh, abolition or even of enlightenment was because the story that historians wanted to tell about abolition was that this was the result of the work of these educated men in Europe and America. Uh, and Benjamin Lay didn't fit into that story. He wasn't very well educated. He was from the wrong class. He, uh, his methods were too extreme. So, so this is an instance of kind of what's at stake uh, because those, those genealogies of enlightenment uh, exclude people who really did play a major role in the development of that constellation of ideas that we now consider to be uh, enlightened. Now, I, I do agree we will never look on the Enlightenment the same way after Michel Foucault, who, who basically made it clear that enlightened ideas, uh, especially in the subjugation of individuals and the imposition of new kinds of discipline, uh, that, that's, that's a dark history of the Enlightenment. But at the same time, I don't think Foucault took enough uh, interest in the struggles that people waged against that process. In other words, there wasn't enough history from below in Foucault's work in order to show that this was all contested. People fought this out. Labor discipline was imposed, but, uh, but people resisted it. They ran away. They captured their ships. They did all of these other things. So I, I think we're uh, at a point in which uh, it, you know, what enlightenment is, is contested. But if you're talking about the so-called professed ideals of Western civilization, it is of great importance to know that those ideas came from elsewhere. Graeber uh, talks a lot in this book and uh, uh, alongside Wengro in The Dawn of Everything about this kind of ironic dismissal of you know the, the very clear archival evidence we have for um, figures like the um, indigenous statesman uh, Kandyaronk's uh, influence on the development of ideas of liberté, égalité, fraternité, I'm sorry for the accent, um, in, uh, in Paris, right? And, and uh, uh, sort of people by disclaiming um, uh, or, or by doubling down on the idea of, of a kind of that no one in the quote unquote the West, which is of course a synecdical for, for, for white people, would ever have paid attention to someone like this which is a sort of well-intentioned but also uh, ironically deeply racist way of writing um, these kind of thinkers out of history. Well, let, let me illustrate your point by talking about how European high culture, philosophy in particular, got some of its best ideas from people down below. Uh, the famous French philosopher Michel de Montaigne wrote uh, probably his one of his most famous essays. It was called Of Cannibals, uh, published in the late uh, 16th century, in which he flipped the, the usual understanding to argue that it wasn't the indigenous people 
of the Americas who were the cannibals. It was the Europeans. Now, that's a pretty uh, radical transformation of the discussion. But it turns out that uh, what Montaigne knew about the indigenous peoples of the America came from a servant of his who had been a sailor who had sailed to Brazil some years earlier and interacted with those people. So again, we see this circulation. Uh, so it's, uh, it, it, it's really important to realize that you know, the elites themselves depend upon sailors and, uh, and indigenous people for their ideas, which they are very keen to present as their own. I feel like I could truly um, talk to you about maritime history for uh, forever. Of course, they've got um, uh, many wonderful books on this subject. So I'm wondering what's uh, what's next. I believe you've got a play coming out in London in June. Tell us about that. Yes, I'm very excited to be able to tell you that uh, on June 13th, uh, the world premiere of a play that I wrote with Naomi Wallace, very distinguished playwright. Uh, a play called The Return of Benjamin Lay uh, will be staged at the uh, Finborough Theatre in London. And it's, it's a play about uh, this radical abolitionist who has come back from the grave uh, to talk to us about uh, the consequences of not having listened to him 300 years ago. The pretext is he's entered a Quaker meeting house and he wants his fellow Quakers who disowned him in the 18th century, he wants them to take him back. So he's got like a whole argument about, uh, you know, their, their history and, and the way in which Quakers did and did not deal with the issue of slavery. So in a very real sense, Benjamin Lay is a prophet, uh, a prophet of history from below who has returned from the grave to speak to us uh, about the present and the future. Warnings from ghosts that we would do well to heed, or to have heeded, rather. Um, Marcus Redeker, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, Pirate Enlightenment, um, The Real Libertalia, is now out the last book by the late great David Graeber, and it has been a pleasure and a privilege talking to you about that, and of course, your own work. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Navara FM. I've been your host, Eleanor Penny. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. A regular donation helps us to plan our future and be even more ambitious with our coverage of news, politics, culture, and the really big ideas that you'll always find on our podcasts. So please consider joining us and become a regular supporter from just £1 a month by heading to navaramedia.com forward slash support.